Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK and JCK Online. This podcast is sponsored by Jewelers Mutual. In 1913, a group of jewelers were told their livelihoods were uninsurable. They came together through these times, and in doing so, Jewelers Mutual was formed. Today, they're here to protect you through the next century. To help for the times ahead, they've taken extra measures to help your business. To learn more, visit jewelersmutual.com slash extra measures. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk with Abe Sherman, founder and CEO of the Buyer's Intelligence Group. Abe talks about why it's so important for jewelry retailers to carefully manage their inventory and balance sheets during the COVID-19 crisis. Hello, everybody. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. Welcome to the Jewelry District. I'm here with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com in New York City, sheltering in place, as we all are. And we have a very uh, special guest today, Abe Sherman, the founder and CEO of the Buyer's Intelligence Group. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Welcome. Not not the best circumstances to have you, but I know you've provided a lot of really great, uh, much-needed advice and guidance to retailers in this critical time. So we wanted to take advantage of your, well, your expertise, really, in financing and figuring out how to make your way around a balance sheet. It seems like you've done that for 20 years now. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to found BIG. Well, the background was uh, I did it the old-fashioned way. Dad opened a jewelry store in 1968, so I started when I was uh, 10 years old, and um, after high school, went to GIA, and um, that's what I've been doing since 1968. I can't even believe I'm saying that out loud. It's been a long time, <laughs> 52 years. Well, and what was the, the impetus for BIG? What role did you see it playing in the industry? So Big started as a buying group. The initial name of it was Buyers International Group because it grew out of a Skull Group concept. We we were Skull members. It's kind of been a name that's been more generic these days as a performance group, or some people think of them as peer groups. It's where you get a dozen jewelers together twice a year. You share data with each other. In the case of Skull, it was mostly financial presentations. Uh, they're, they're no longer in business. We've since started our own groups. We call them Plexus, which we started in 2010, something. I think it's been 10 years now. And those groups, we have four that are Plexus groups, and we do the financial benchmarking and inventory benchmarking for a fifth group that's been doing their own facilitation for the last 80 years or so as a group. Wow. And you obviously get a lot of talking to other jewelers and this kind of information swap. And you decided to kind of institutionalize that, I guess, into this structure that you have? Uh, in the institutionalize it from the perspective of we have a format. So we always look at financial. So it's financial benchmarking and also financial education. The challenge when I learned how to do the financials is what was taught by accountants. And what we do is not accounting, it's more finance oriented. In other words, taking the numbers from the income statement of the balance sheet, how do you actually manage your business using the numbers rather than teaching accounting? We're not teaching accounting. On the benchmarking side, what's been really interesting and useful for the jewelers is they get to compare themselves against each other. So you grew up in the business. If you can look back at it, is there anything that you wish you knew then that you know now? 
Well, sure. Where do I begin? So grew up in the family business with four older brothers and my parents. Two of the brothers came in and out over time. I, I was the youngest by far. And what I learned by being in a family jewelry business is the jewelry business is tough. The family jewelry business is even tougher. And uh, if anybody's listening to this that's grown up in or has been in a family business, it doesn't really matter what industry. There's books written on this particular subject, you know, uh, how to deal with the family dynamics. But the thing that I came away with after leaving retail 20 years ago was I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about the jewelry business. Number one is I wish that I had learned financials at an early age. I didn't learn financials until I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and I didn't master them until we started doing it ourselves. Inventory planning, inventory management, marketing, positioning, all of the things that we get into today and, and actually teach are things that we didn't understand as a family business back in the, you know, from the 60s and 70s. It wasn't as necessary probably then because there wasn't as many malls. We didn't have as much competition. The internet didn't exist. Today, you have to be really good at what you do. You need to own your numbers and you need to have a much better reign over how to manage your business through both financials and inventory management. And would you say most retailers are not there? I mean, is that unusual for you to find a retailer that owns their numbers? Yeah, very few as a percentage of the total number of retailers that are out there. And when we start with the retailer, they'll, they'll get, it's not that they don't get financial statements, they just don't understand their financial statements. So it's really interesting when you speak with a CFO or a bookkeeper that comes into the jewelry industry from other industries. And the most interesting conversations that I have in this area is when someone comes in as a financial professional, including CPAs, and we start talking about the difference between the jewelry industry and how it works and any other job they've ever had. And I don't care if they've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. We're just different. And so financial education vis-a-vis -vis the jewelry industry is, is a little weird because of the nature of what makes up sales and how all of the key performance indicators that people use to manage their business, whether it's Turn or Jim Roy or, or even how they calculate cost of goods, how it's different in our business because of the way the stores are made up in terms of sales. And what are some of the key differences that they've noticed? Ah, so no other industry where you get memo goods, for example, or you get six or 12 month terms, for example, or you can depreciate inventory, but actually keep the inventory. You know, there's a lot of weirdness that goes on in this business where people, you know, for example, they'll write things down, which if any of you that are listening to this are in the habit of depreciating inventory for tax purposes, they'll, they'll take aged inventory and write it down to a dollar or something, but they don't scrap it. They keep it. Yeah. You got to stop doing that because all of the key performance indicators that you use, the percentages of age, your actual gross profit margins, your turnover, return on investment, all of the numbers therefore become wrong. And if we were to start anywhere, it's let's stop the bad behavior. If there's a tax issue, pay the taxes. If you can't pay the taxes because you don't have cash, it's usually because there's too much inventory. So it's just this big circle of problems. Hmm. And and I, I guess one of the issues with jewelry and coming into the jewelry business is that it's the products are expensive. So that's why you need consignment because you can't necessarily afford to own all this inventory. 
Oh, yeah. I don't have a problem with memo goods. I have a problem with memo goods when the inventory that's owned, the asset inventory, is getting a turn of 0.6 or 0.7. And then on top of that, there's another $350,000 in memo. So the memo, therefore, then competes with the asset, and then you sell the memo goods, and it just creates an invoice. You know, people think memo is free, so why not? In the perfect world, you wouldn't own anything. Everything would be on memo, and you just pay as you go. But, you know, that's not reality. Well, so how does this all affect the world we're in now? Now, in terms of you know most retailers, if we could just think about your average jeweler sitting there on a portion of owned inventory, a portion of memo, what do you tell them now? You know what can they do with that inventory to try to right some of the wrongs they've done in the past, try to correct themselves and position themselves for a post-COVID recovery, whenever that may be. So the wake-up call is that cash flow is going to be a challenge for the rest of this year and perhaps half of next year. No one's going to be buying lots of inventory. They may fill in, but they're not going to be terribly interested in buying more. So how do you use your existing inventory that you own to convert it to cash? And there are ways to do that. We have videos that we've posted on our website of remerchandising non-performing inventory as an example. And what I mean by remerchandising is let's say you bought a sapphire ring three or four years ago and paid 400 bucks for it. And you've got it in the case for pick a price and it hasn't sold. Okay, well, that's one way to price it. So when you think about how jewelry is priced, you can buy something for $400 and price it at Keystone. You know, that's your your $7.99 retail. You can use a 60% gross profit and mark it up two and a half times. Now it's $9.95. Or you can get a three-time markup. There are also companies out there that are quote unquote credit stores that'll market up four or five, six times and give 50 or 60% off all the time. That's just their business model. Either way, that's how it works for them is fine. The reality is that some portion of the inventory just doesn't sell. So what do you do with it? Well, the knee-jerk reaction from the industry is, well, let's just push it back onto the vendor, let them deal with it. Well, that's not fair to the vendor unless you're a really, really good customer. And I don't mean you just pay your bills on time, that the relationship between what you're buying and what you're returning has to be beneficial for both parties. So if you have inventory that hasn't sold, let's take this hypothetical $400 ring, what winds up happening to it if you can't return it to the supplier? It winds up going in a clearance case or somebody puts a tag on it, you know, was, is. Okay, fine. But when we find that 30 or 40 or 50, and I've seen as high as 60 and 70% of the inventory that's sitting in jewelry stores is aged, meaning at least a year or two or three old, it's not possible to deal with it all in one shot. So that $400 sapphire ring has a value based on what it looks like. It has a perceived value. The fact that the store sells jewelry every year, three, 4,000 pieces or more per door, and that particular ring didn't sell, what are you going to do with it? So we've, for the last decade, have been doing something called remerchandising, where we'll take that piece and slot it into a price point that makes sense based on the holes that the jeweler has in their inventory. So if you need a sapphire ring for $6.99 and you have it priced at $1,000, you don't put it on sale for 30% off. You just buff it, ultrasonic it, steam it, put a new tag on it, and you price it at whatever it looks like it's going to sell for based on the rest of the inventory that you have. 
The challenge with the jewelry business, unlike food, clothing, automobiles, is it doesn't have an expiration date, so we tend to keep it. But we're also dealing with the reality of the product at different price points depending on the price of gold. So you could have purchased that piece at $1,200 gold or $1,400. Now it's $1,700 gold, right? At the end of the year, if it's $2,000 gold, a lot of people will take a look at that piece and say, well, it's worth more. Let's just mark it up. Perfectly fine as long as you have the cash flow to pay your bills. The jewelry stores that struggle with cash flow, if I have to say anything that's good news, those that are over-inventoried, they already own their inventory. It's not going to make their suppliers happy if they're not getting paid. It's also not going to make the suppliers happy if they're not buying anything right now. But you asked the question about what do we do today post-COVID? So you have to sell down the inventory that you own and convert it to cash. Does that mean you're going to have a liquidation event? I hope not, because everyone's going to be having liquidation events. I think the most important thing to maintain for the rest of this year is gross profit dollars. And look, if it's dire, if you can't pay your staff, if you can't pay yourself and so on, can't pay your bank loans, you need to raise cash that have an inventory reduction event for sure. I don't know if people are going to be standing in line at jewelry stores just because this particular jeweler is having a sale. You know, for me, I, I want to hold on to that inventory and turn it into profit and cash flow in the months and years ahead. So how about cuts as far as costs on the operational side? How should people be thinking about, you know, you talk a lot about cash flow. Obviously, there's no cash or very little cash coming in at this point. What kind of things should people be thinking about as far as how to market their finances and dealing with bills and, and other costs? Yeah, everything has to be prioritized now. So that's why I strongly recommend that if people are not visiting with their financials at least every month, they need to do that with their CPA. And I don't mean just get the reports. I mean really study them so that there's a very deep understanding line by line of every expense that comes into the company. What we've been doing a lot of is cash flow analysis and cash flow planning. What that means is that on a line by line basis for the next six months, you all should have a good understanding of where your expenses are. What we find are people that have a good understanding of their costs of running their business. They're much less stressed today than those people that are just looking at what was $100,000 coming in this month or a million, depending on the size of the business, going to some reduced amount. For the next month or two, while things are still shut down, everyone's going to be on hold. All of the suppliers know that. Landlords know it. Everybody knows it. So if you don't have cash built to deal with the next month, two months, three months of shutdown, then what we're hoping will come out of this event is what happened after the depression where people became savers again. And jewelry stores, you know, they have a lot of assets. There's a lot of inventory. Inventory doesn't pay the bills, cash pays the bills. And so if you think about what should come out of this as a plus, then I'm hoping that everyone gets really serious about reducing their expenses where they can, reducing inventory where they can, building cash so that they can weather these kinds of storms. Because whether it's a virus or just a, a meltdown of the stock market, the business cycle itself is roughly every 10 years. And if you study the cycles of the economics, you know, when things are going really well, everybody expects they're going to continue to go well until they go bad. And <laughs> people think it's going to stay bad. So it's just a cycle. And this is a particularly horrific event, but it's going to be over, you know, in different parts of the country. You know, Rob's in New York. 
Victoria's in LA, they're probably not going to open at the same time. I don't see New York City opening at the same time that Iowa is going to open. The middle part of the country is going to open up sooner. So there's going to be a major disruption that's going to take months and months to work through. And that's the unknown. So if you ask what that looks like, I, I have no answers because we, nobody knows. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. You know, you've talked about suppliers a few times and talked about re-merchandising. And clearly, most people, if not everyone, will be at a standstill in terms of buying new product apart from a couple fill-ins. So what do you say to suppliers? How does this you know, impact the health of the industry overall? Are we looking at a drastic drop-off in the sort of ecosystem? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid so. Because, you know, if you think about the amount of inventory and the relative low turns that we already have in the industry compared to other industries, is this going to make it better? No. So we've lost most of March, all of April, probably May. What's going to happen when it turns back on again? Is it going to be a light switch? No. It'll be that dimmer switch. It'll come back up slowly. So the vendors have a different problem. The vendors have to get paid. And if they're funding their company based on the receivables that they have, and the bank's not going to give them any money for inventory because the receivables are now three, four, five months old, that's going to impact the industry. So manufacturers can get creative about this. And we hope to work with, we work with 30 manufacturers now, but to work with more of them in, in figuring out how to leverage the inventory that's already sitting in showcases. And you talked a little bit about having, you know, cash flow and having a reserve fund. Obviously, nobody expected business to just drop off to the extent it does. But do you have like a ballpark range of what a good reserve fund should be for a jewelry business? Minimum two months of operating expenses. Better would be three months. We work with people that have millions of dollars in cash and no debt. And we work with people that have millions of dollars in inventory and no cash. And they owe $3 million to banks and vendors. So there's a, a wide range of interest in cash versus debt. <laughs> and it's interesting because those people who, once they get out of debt, they don't ever want to be in debt again. They tend to have the best cash positions built up over time. And uh, what we'd recommend is you take some small percentage of your monthly sales. If you're doing a million, two million, three, and you're doing a hundred grand a month, take 5% of that, say $5,000 a month. It's going to take you a year, two years, three years. Eventually you'll build up cash. If you start to liquidate inventory, you sell down your inventory. Obviously, your program goods and your best sellers need to be replenished. But if we're selling inventory that we've owned for a while and you guys are overstocked, the challenge a lot of people have is they think that the inventory should be based on total sales. So if it's a $2 million store, and if you ask a bunch of jewelers, ask them how much inventory they should have, and you'll get answers somewhere around a million bucks to get a one-time turn. The problem with that is the $2 million is not made up of showcase sales. It's between custom repairs and memo goods, it's as much as 40% of the total volume does not come out of the showcases. And that's the biggest problem that I never understood when I was growing up in the family business. Interesting. In terms of pricing and price points, I've heard you say that the bulk of retail sales in the U.S. are for goods under $1,000. And is that where people should really, even jewelers who formerly sold much more than that or whose average sale was more, do you think given the crisis we're now in that that should overwhelmingly be the focus? 
Interesting question. So I'll tell you what happened after 2008, 2009, when at the same time, a lot of stores didn't carry sterling silver. And then all of a sudden, sterling became a thing. And in particular, the bead business. So I wrote a newsletter, I don't know, 100 years ago now called The Pandora Phenomenon about bringing in Pandora product. And I got a lot of people pushed back on that saying, you know, why should I sell $25 beads? And I said, well, you shouldn't, but I don't care about the sale. I care about the customer and I want to meet them where they are. But what happened was the the customer changed. They still wanted to buy jewelry, but they didn't want to spend two or three thousand dollars. They wanted to spend two or three hundred. What's this going to look like? When's the last time we had unemployment where it is today? So let's get the crystal ball out and let's polish it up. Are you going to tell me that price points are going to be high end, medium end, low end? I don't know. Depends on the customer that walks in the door. All we know is that somewhere between 75 to 80% of all transactions are under $1,000. We develop price ladders. So if you're dealing with diamond pendants or gold hoop earrings, I don't care. You're going to develop a price ladder that accommodates the customer in all different price points. And when you talk about re-merchandise, should people sometimes redesign the pieces or is it just switch the price points? And Yeah, sometimes if it makes sense to break it up and rebuild it. But a lot of times the labor cost, especially if it's a product made overseas, it's just not worth it. Weren't you telling a story about somebody who sold a piece that was like 30 years in her showcase or something like that? 1963, yeah. And when was this? This was at uh, the Midwest Jewelry Show a dozen years ago. I was giving a talk. And because that inventory was paid for so long ago, and because it's on the books as an asset, they don't want to do anything with it. Again, it depends on the jeweler. If cash flow is not a problem, I don't have a problem with it. But if people are having a challenge paying their bills, then the only opportunity is to squeeze the cash back out of the inventory. So let's say you're a jeweler and you've just been given the all clear whenever that is. And I don't know if it'll, there'll ever be an actual all clear, but let's say you're allowed to open up again. What are some of the things they should be thinking about? Mm, building cash, communicating with their suppliers. They should be doing that anyway today. Developing cash plans for when they're going to be able to pay their bills. I, I imagine this wide spectrum of solutions are going to come into play. I mean, other than that, they really have to take budgeting and inventory planning more serious today than they've ever done before. So if there's two areas that jewelers should be working on, it's number one, learn your financials and really own your numbers. And number two, you really need to create a merchandising plan around every category. You know, I've been thinking about which categories and what types of jewels might actually sell this year. And I wonder what you have to say about the bridal category. Do you have a sense that that is going to be, you know, the one bright spot in the, the year's sales or? So bridal, listen, the last couple of years have been terrific. You know, business has been really strong. I don't think bridal is going to stop. Yeah, but do you think there will be pent-up demand even for fashion and for fun things? I mean, you know, at some point when people hopefully start going out again, could that be something that picks up? I Listen, I'm not a fan of the concept of pent-up demand for the jewelry industry. I think people want to start acting normal again. You know, there'll be pent-up demand to go to the hairdresser and Manny petties And I think restaurants, there is going to be a pent-up demand to not cook and to go out and actually be with people. You know, the other issues we have, let's think about it. Every other retail store that's going to open 
at the same time in your particular marketplace, right? They're not going to open all over the country, but they're going to open in your marketplace. So wherever you're located, every other store is going to open at the same time. Do you think they're not going to have liquidation events? Every clothing store is going to be sitting on inventory that they brought in in February for, for March, April, and May. So springtime items didn't sell. They're not selling. You know, some of it's selling online. Fine. And so we don't live in a vacuum. So everyone's asking about this pent up demand concept. And, you know, I just think about what are we going to do when we start getting outside again? And how are we going to act as consumers? And I think it's a market driven difference between anyone that's listening. Obviously, the amount of jewelers has been shrinking. The amount of independent jewelers has been shrinking. Do you think this will expedite that to some extent? Yeah, I think it's going to expedite the shrinking of retail. Now, look at the industry. You've got national chains, you've got regional chains, you've got department stores, you've got independents. Each section of this industry is going to be impacted and perhaps differently because the jewelry sold within department stores are still sold within the department store environment. How are the department stores doing right now? Are they going to get funding to stay in business and so on? The majors, you know, they have a different problem. And this is something that a lot of independents don't really appreciate, but if a, if a jewelry store, an independent has one or three or five or whatever locations, if they want to buy one piece or five pieces of the same, it's easy for the supplier to supply that. But if you have a thousand doors and you want to order a thousand of a number of something right now, where are those factories going to get the goods? So the entire supply chain is being disrupted mining, manufacturing overseas, all of it. So how does this impact malls? How does it impact the stores in the malls? How does it impact the independents? All of this is yet to be known, but when we ask the question, how is it going to impact the industry? We have to broaden that question out because we have to look at it by segment. I think, and maybe I'm a little jaded because I work with independents, but I think that the smart operators are going to do really, really well coming out of this. And I think there's also a new appreciation for small business because that's all you're hearing about is the problems of small business. And people realize how important some of these businesses are to their community and to their town. Listen, I remember my dad opened the store in Somerville, New Jersey in 1968. There were 11 independent jewelry stores. I've not been in that town in, in a while, but there may be one or two there now. And that's the same with jewelry stores, independents all over the United States, right? All the towns went to malls. So now you don't see many independents in malls like we used to. They're either freestanding or whatever. But the consumer, from a loyalty perspective, I think you're right, Rob. I think shop local and whether it's eat at the local restaurant instead of the chain restaurant or shop at the local jeweler instead of buying things online – you hear a lot of people saying online is going to be much bigger than it is today. I don't know that I buy that for our product. I have a question about, you were talking about sort of the savvy operators and the ones that you think will thrive after this. What do you think about people advertising during this time? I mean, given, assuming that they have some cash to do that, is that a smart move? Hmm. Every message I've been listening to or watching on TV has been, we're here for you. <laughs> 
it's an interesting question because what do people base their advertising spend on? What's the number that they use as a percentage of what, right? So they use five or 6% of sales. That's how they determine their advertising budget. Well, one little takeaway that I would recommend is people start looking at the percentage of gross profit dollars, not of sales. You talked a little bit about online. Are you noticed any independent jewelers doing well with online and has it worked out for people? Is it something they should especially now be investing more in or looking more at? Yeah, it's going to be a part of everyone's planning, but a lot of people got into it early. You've got to spend a lot of money and dedicate staff to that particular process. If you don't, then it becomes just another thing that somebody's not going to spend the time with. Obviously, it's a conversation that keeps getting resurrected today because they think you know online is going to be a, a bigger and bigger part of our business. But it, I guess it depends on the individual business because it doesn't seem to be right for everybody. Correct. For more information, is there any books that you think are really good that have influenced you or that you think be helpful now that people have a lot of time on their hands? If anyone struggles with trying to get their heads into the management side of their business, whether they're a retailer or a supplier, there's only two or three that I would recommend that they would read like starting tomorrow. One is Good to Great, probably the best business book ever. The other one is called The E-Myth, M-Y-T-H, The E-Myth Revisited. And it talks about the difference between you know somebody that is good at what they do, so they open up a business and they find out that the business is a lot tougher than just dealing with the product. Another one is Start With Why, which is fairly new. Those are good. The other thing I would suggest, other than those three books, is get to understand the cyclical nature of the economy and how it works so that you're not surprised when there's a downturn because this happens once every 10 years in some form or another and there's an expectation that good times last and they just don't and of course bad times don't last either no no so any thoughts you want people to really take away from this or really be thinking about as we suffer through this whole thing yeah tough times don't last tough people do right <laughs> You know, this impacts everybody all at the same time. So in the truest nature, we're all in this together. We all understand that we're all under pressure. And I've been finding friends of mine, it's important just to pick up the phone and call them just to see how they're doing. You know what? I'll, I'll leave them with this. You know, Zig Ziglar, who passed away within the last 12 months, he was somebody that I listened to a lot in the early 90s. He's got a book on tape you can get now, audio book called uh, See You at the Top. And I remember one of his lines saying that life is tough. And when you realize life is tough and you're tough on yourself, life will become a lot easier. So things are tough right now. There's no question about it. There's a lot of people out of work. There's a lot of people stressed whether they're going to get back to work or not. But everybody is in it together and we will get through this. Thank you for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Katie Clifford, co-producer alongside Kathy Passero. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK, sponsored by Jewelers Mutual. Jewelry District.